The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like for you to open your Bibles, if you would please, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And we are nearing the close of our study of Paul's first letter to the Thessalonian church. And today we want to look at his final prayer for the well-being of these people that were very dear to his heart. Thessalonian church seems to be one of the apostles' favorites as he was filled with thanksgiving for the good reports of their belief and their faithfulness to God's word. In the first chapter, he saluted the church with gushing commendations of their work of faith, of their labor of love, and that hopeful expectancy that they had of Christ's return. He also wrote that this church was a model church. Their giving was exemplary as poor Christians in Jerusalem were blessed by their kindness and unselfishness. And in Paul's letter to the Corinthian church, he mentions them as an example for other churches to follow. And yet as exuberant as Paul was about their their, uh, faith and his praises of them, he knew that they still lacked in some areas of their faith. And in the end of chapter 3, he said that he wanted to perfect their faith. And then he went on in chapter 4 to encourage them about moral issues. And this was because they lived in a very immoral culture. They had recently come out of this, this terrible lifestyle. It was very difficult for them to... Uh, completely separate them themselves from the way that they live. Now, much like people in our country today, they were overrun with excessive attention to sexual immorality. And so Paul spoke of fornication. And that covers, that word covers every form of sexual perversion, from homosexuality to pornography to pedophilia. And it was tough living in this environment where they were immersed every day in that kind of wickedness. And so Paul knew if they were to succeed in their new Christian lives, that they must forsake their old life, that they must put all of that behind them and be holy people. The gospel called them to be holy and unblameable as they waited for the Lord to return. And not only was it their sexual appetites that Paul was concerned with and Uh, That needed to be curbed, but he also taught them that they need to turn all of their attention to the worship of Jesus Christ and the love of their fellow man through the preaching of the gospel. To love God and to love your fellow man, Jesus said, these are the two greatest commandments. Well, now we see in verses 23 and 24 the way that the apostle prays for this. He just finished talking about the church in worship in the previous verses, and that's where we've spent the past few weeks, that if they are to worship the Father in spirit and in truth, then they must have God's help. This is not going to be accomplished in their strength because there's none of us that serves the Lord and loves the Lord without the Holy Spirit who lives in us. So he writes these these two verses as an injunction of wholehearted dedication to Christ. Verses 23 and 24, the fifth chapter. And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless 
unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he that calleth you who will also do it. Paul said, I pray that God will sanctify you wholly. That is in everything that you are, in every part of you, body, soul, and spirit, you must be blameless. And he means that they would be holy without reason for any accusation against them. They were to be spotless as Christ desires his people to be so that he would find nothing in them. He would find no hypocrisy in them that would hurt their testimony of the faith. And I would have to say, isn't that a terrible problem for Christianity today? What is the chief complaint against us? I think it would be hypocrisy. It's the personal claim that we're different from the world, when in fact we're not very different at all. And when push comes to shove, and when times are tough, we begin to compromise our faith just as the world does. And then Paul goes on to say that God is faithful to work in you. God designed you for the glory of Christ. And we are to understand that God's work in us always continues. That when we trust in Christ, when we become Christian, that work continues. And the degree of our growth in Christ depends upon the synergy of our cooperation with his Holy Spirit. Now this, in effect, is the doctrine of sanctification. And sanctification is the theme of the message today. Sanctification is our completeness in Christ. It's the growth in all Christian graces. Its objective is to make us like Christ and wholly set apart to God. And when we always put God first in our hearts, and when He is our highest priority, we are being sanctified according to the New Testament model. Now, I've chosen as the title of the message today, With All My Heart. We used to sing a chorus with that title. The lyrics say, With all my heart, I want to love you, Lord, and live my life each day to know you more. All that is in me is yours completely. I'll serve you only with all my heart. And certainly that echoes the words of Christ in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, when he said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. In 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3, Paul said, Sanctification is the will of God for you. Now, as we review this letter, and in fact, in review of all of Paul's letters, he is unmistakable in telling his listeners what God expects. Now, although he's writing to a persecuted people, they're living in great temptations of an immoral culture, he offers them no excuse not to serve and obey God. And so he gives them difficult, demanding, unrelenting commandments that at times seems impossible for them to do. I mean, it's like when you sit in a church service like today and you hear the pleas of the preacher to serve God and to obey God, to live holy and righteous lives, and you are convicted when you hear what's said. You know it's the Word of God, and so you are determined to do just what the preacher says because you know that it's right. But then you leave here. And you go to your job, you go to your neighborhoods, you go out into your everyday life, and you find that you don't do any better than you did before you heard the sermon. And you realize it's hard to do, it's hard to live for Christ. The world is out there waiting for you when you leave this building, and Satan is out there waiting for you, and he lurks behind every corner, ready to pounce on you and try to destroy that resolve that you have to serve Christ. So how will you live for him? 
How are you going to avoid the temptations? How do you overcome them? Well, as clear as Paul is about the command to be holy, he was equally clear that you can't do it without turning to God and relying on Him for your sanctification. God must work in you and through you. He must cleanse every part of you so that you will serve Him with all your heart. So Paul offered no excuses for believers because that's the way he lived. There was no power in him to overcome the world. He wasn't superhuman. I'm sure at times he was tempted to throw up his hands and to give up. Whenever he turned, every place that he went, he was persecuted. He's always in danger of his life. And here in Thessalonica, he was run out of town. But that didn't stop him from going to the next place and to the next place to preach the same gospel of Jesus Christ, fully expecting the same thing would happen again. And so he didn't throw up his hands and walk away from the mission field because he was helped by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now in chapter 2, in verse number 8, he said that he was willing to work for the gospel and to give his very own soul for these people that were dear to him. And Paul knew the power in him to do it was the power that he offered these people, the power of the same Holy Spirit that indwells all believers. And that's the reason there is none of us that has an excuse for failure to serve God acceptedly. Now that's what I want to talk to you about today. What is the doctrine of sanctification? How is it accomplished in the Christian life? Now, most of you are aware, as I said last week, that we take godly pride in being a teaching church. I want you to know God's Word because to understand it is to know Christ. This chorus says, I want to know you, Lord. And that's what Paul said, I want to know the Lord. He said, I want to know the power of His resurrection. And I'm telling you, that's not just something you sing about. That's something you have to work at. It's something you've got to strive for. The power of the resurrection and the ability to know Christ is available only through God's Word. And so I want you to know the scriptures and know what they tell you to do. And so I, I despise churches that send people away with little platitudes about being good and loving everybody and helping your neighbor, but they don't demand personal holiness for the people to do it. So you, you, you've got to be sanctified. You must be blameless to have any effect on this evil world. So the purpose of your life is Christ and his glory. You can't vary from that purpose and still be influential on people and be acceptable to God. Romans chapter 12 says you must present your body to God a living sacrifice. And I can tell you that the major method of being wholly sanctified, a living sacrifice, wholly sanctified, that is your education. The main method is your education in God's word. And so you'll pardon me if I seem to be too much of a stickler about doctrine. And you'll pardon me if you think I spend too much time on the exposition of the Word. And you'll pardon me if I tell you things you don't know and emphasize things you do know and point out things you didn't know that you needed to know. I want you to go away understanding what God's Word says. So, the first avenue of approach to this text before we progress into this doctrine of sanctification is to, sanctification is to drive out the controversy that's here. Now, as with many Bible texts, there's room to argue. And sometimes the arguments get in the way of the exposition so that we can't see the big picture. Underlying 
arguments can keep us from the truth of God's word. Now you may not have recognized as we read this today that there is an issue here. Hopefully some of you in the Romans class understand it. Theologians see it and they consider it to be a huge elephant in the room. And it concerns Paul's language when he says God desires to sanctify them in the spirit, soul, and body. And the question is, what constitutes human nature? How many parts are there to our human nature? Now, last week in the end of the sermon, I asked you to consider that. Uh, what constitutes our human nature? Are we dichotomous or are we trichotomous? And that simply means how many parts are there in our nature? Are we three parts? Do we possess spirit, soul, and body? Well, we're not going to argue about the body. You and I are here this morning in our bodies. I've heard some say that they can't be here, but they will be with us in spirit. But it's funny, we've never taken an offering from a spirit, and we've never had a spirit teach a Sunday school class, never seen a spirit sing in the choir. Really, I've never seen a spirit do anything for God's work. So you're here in your body, and that's where you should be. Right here in your body. So we're not going to argue about whether people have bodies. The question in the verse is not the body. The question is about the spirit and the soul. Is there a difference between the spirit and the soul? If they are different, then we have three parts in our nature. Or are we maybe more than three? Well, let's go back to that verse I read in Matthew a moment ago. Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven. Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. Now, assuming we all agree about the body, Jesus didn't mention the body in this verse. Uh, of course, we would all say, well, the body is assumed, just like I assumed as I preached to you today, you're here in your body. So he says that you are to love God in your heart, your soul, and your body. Now, most people don't have a problem agreeing here that the soul is the soul, the mind refers to the spirit, but what about the heart? What does Jesus mean when he speaks of the heart? Well, then maybe we're four-part beings. Maybe we have body, soul, spirit, and heart, whatever heart may mean in the verse. Now, are you beginning to see the dilemma? 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 can't be an argument for three parts of human nature because of Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven. Now, if what Paul intends to do here is to make an argument about the three parts of the human nature, then what statement is Jesus making? Is that also about human nature? Well, no, we see there has to be something else going on because the two statements don't agree. And so to simplify things, we have to look a little bit deeper into the Scripture to see how the spirit and the soul relate. And when we investigate Scripture, we find that the soul and the spirit are interchangeable terms. In other words, soul is spirit and spirit is soul. The terms are used interchangeably when Jesus spoke of his own human nature. He said in John 12, 27, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this hour came I, uh, for this cause came I unto this hour. And then in John 13, 21, we read, When Jesus had thus said, he was troubled in spirit, and testified and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you that one of you shall betray me. Now, obviously, Jesus meant the same whether he said the soul or the spirit or spirit. Now, the, these are also used interchangeably 
when referring to our constitution in heaven. In Hebrews 12 verse 23, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. But then on the other hand, we read in Revelation 6 verse 9, And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar, this is a scene in heaven, I saw under the altar, what? The souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. Now clearly in those verses, soul and spirit mean the same. And then we can go all the way back to the creation, that God made man, he breathed into him the breath of life, Breath, that is the same word as spirit. And when the spirit came into man, he became a living soul. So in other words, the spirit made him a living soul. So soul and spirit are the same. Jesus said, don't be afraid of those who can kill the body. But be afraid of God who destroys both body and soul in hell. We have to ask, now where's the spirit? Well, it must be the same as the soul. And there are many, many more scriptures like this, too many for me to mention to you today. So if you want, if you want more, just send me a note and I'll be glad to point you in the direction of more scriptures on this. So it seems that man is two parts, not three. He is body and soul or body and spirit, if you prefer. And the scriptures make no practical difference between the two. So if I say to you that God wants to save your soul then I hope you understand that I also mean that God wants to save your spirit. I mean, how would you separate those things? How does he save those individually? The scripture says that you will be a soul in heaven, and they say that you will be a spirit in heaven, and it says you'll have a body in heaven. Now, many people believe that we're three parts, and they'll say, well, the soul is the way that we relate downward to the earth. This is usually the way it's explained. Here's the difference between soul and spirit, they say. The soul is the way that we relate downward to the earth, and the spirit is the way that we relate upwardly to God. Well, then we would have to ask, what is the purpose of a soul in heaven? Then what does it relate to? Because it doesn't relate to the earth. So the only answer is that soul and spirit are the same, Physical death separates the soul from the body. And then at the resurrection, the soul or the spirit re-enters the body to be glorified in heaven. Well, it begs the question, then why does Paul mention both in 1 Thessalonians 5.23? And I think it's for the same reason that Jesus used both and then added a third in Matthew 22.37. All of this is done for emphasis. It doubly emphasizes the point that everything that we are, all that we are, belongs to God. All must be given completely to God. So Paul could have said, right here in 1 Thessalonians, give your soul, give your spirit. And then, for more emphasis, he could have started splitting up the body. And to be more emphatic, he says, give your hands to serve, give your eyes to understanding, give your ears to the hearing of the word, give your feet to evangelism, give your heart for love, give your mind. In all its intellect, all that you are must be turned into sinless, blameless, holy, sanctified people that are dedicated to God. So I hope that clears up some of the confusion of many people that don't see the forest for the trees. What we can't do is let singular issues bog us down and cause us to miss the point of the passage. So the point here, all you are belongs to God. Now, we're ready to discuss then this doctrine of sanctification. How does that relate to your success in the Christian life? Well, in the scriptures, 
And in the Christian faith, doctrine must be approached in the right order. Some are confused about it, and they want to put sanctification first. They want to start the process of sanctification in order to get people to the faith and to get them to heaven. But sanctification is not the means of obtaining our salvation. In other words, you can't start getting close to God and then you'll be led into the faith. You can't start doing things that you think are good and that will prove how good you are and thereby you will be accepted with God. Now, the means of receiving our justification, that is, the legal right standing with God according to his law, is by faith in Jesus Christ alone. God justifies through the work of Christ, not our works. And so not until you have been justified by faith in Christ will you be sanctified to serve him by his Holy Spirit. And so God has to work in your heart first to change you so that your service is acceptable. Jesus said, love God with all your heart. And I promise you that God is not interested in what you are in your heart until Jesus is in your heart. He's not interested in what you are before you believe in Christ. He doesn't want your heart before then. We say, well, why? Why doesn't God want me before then? Why does he want my heart? Well, Jeremiah gives us the answer. He said, the heart is desperately wicked. Why does God want a heart like that? So God wants you to have a clean heart. He wants you to be a new creation in Christ. God is the creator, and so he wants to wash you and recreate you. And so when you hear this, you must be born again. That's what it is. That's the the Holy Spirit of God recreating you into the image of Christ. And then you're ready to grow in Christ. God changes the heart. And the heart represents the new nature that's been recreated in Jesus Christ. Now, to help us out a little bit on this issue, our church statement of faith explains, it clarifies sanctification. And in Article 10 on sanctification, it says, we believe that sanctification is the process by which, according to the will of God, we are made partakers of his holiness, that it is a progressive work, that it is begun in regeneration, And that it is carried on in the hearts of believers by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, the sealer and comforter, in continual use of the appointed means, especially the Word of God, self-examination, self-denial, watchfulness, and prayer. Now, there are many important parts of that statement that will help us discover what Paul meant must happen as he prayed for their complete consecration to God. Now, first then, we're going to discuss the definition of sanctification. What is sanctification? Now, the first phrase of the article of faith says, we believe that sanctification is the process by which, according to the will of God, we are made partakers of his holiness. Now, that's a grand thought, isn't it? I mean, think for just a moment. You, as a sinful person, with all of your terrible thoughts, with all of our frequent failures, that you and I that are so disappointed even in ourselves that we can be made partakers of the holiness of the perfectly righteous almighty God. That's a humbling thought. That's something we don't approach lightly. Paul said, God will sanctify you. What does he mean? Well, he used that term, sanctify, found many times in the Old Testament. It's translated in the Greek New Testament from the word hagiadzo, and it means holy, 
It means to purify. It means to separate and be apart, separate apart for God. It means to separate from sin. It means to change the holiness. So sanctification is the process that takes place within our salvation where God progressively removes our sin and that desire to sin. God moves us to holiness. It's the process by which we are molded into the image of Christ so that over time our lives look like his. Now when you're first saved, you don't look very much like Christ. Oh, you, you may have thought that you wanted to be a good person. You never thought that you really wanted to make, be so much like Christ, but you wanted to be a good person. You didn't want to be a bad person. But then if you did something wrong, it really didn't much concern you. Your conscience might bother you for a little while, but then you soon get over it. But then one day you heard the gospel of Christ and the Holy Spirit began to work in your heart and began to change you. And he showed you that you're not okay the way that you are. And he regenerated your sinful heart and he gave you a desire to repent of your sins and place your faith in Christ and have him save you from those sins. But you know what? On that day... You were still far away from what God wanted you to be. You were a work in progress. Your old habits were still there. Your old friends were still there. But you weren't the same. And so you weren't happy any longer with your old habits and not happy any longer with your old friends. And so God began a process to extirpate you from them. So when you sin, no longer is it ho-hum, oh well, there goes another one. No, it was very painful to you. You couldn't be happy. You were unsettled. Something had to change because you were changed. The Holy Spirit had given you a new heart. And you were right then in God's sanctifying process. It had begun. And still to this day and until the day that you die, God will still work in you and mold you into the image of Christ. Little by little, you become more like Christ. So what is sanctification? Here's the definition. Sanctification is the process of being made holy resulting in a change lifestyle. Sanctification is God working in your new nature that was implanted by regeneration. Now we're throwing out theological terms here. So you might say, well, what is regeneration? Well, that's being born again. The change is Compared to being born again, because in regeneration, you become a new person in Christ. And I'll tell you that every born-again person enters the sanctification process. You can't be born again without it. It's impossible, because the Holy Spirit comes to live in you. He dwells in you, and where He is, where the Spirit of God is, there can't be sin. He won't let you live in sin. Now, the Apostle John wrote that believers cannot continue in sin because God's seed is in them. He meant the Holy Spirit. And so he meant that where the Holy Spirit is, he works to displace sin. He drives out sin so that you will be holy. And if you're not being made holy, something is wrong. You can't be a child of God and not be in the sanctification process. If you go for very long without the conviction of sin, you need to double check to see if you're a true believer. Paul said, examine yourselves, whether you're in the faith. Why did he say that? Why? Because, well, some people are fooled into thinking that they're Christians. What do you examine? This very thing. Are you being sanctified? 
Are you being holier, becoming holier every day, day by day? Because sanctification is an ongoing process that must happen in the life of every believer. Now, when we speak of regeneration and justification, those aren't processes. Those, those don't take place over an extended period. You can't split apart repentance, regeneration, faith, justification can't split those apart but there is an order to them there is a sequence to them but there is no chronology of them but sanctification is different it goes on your entire life the others are instantaneous while sanctification takes time you have much to learn you have much to grow and this is what you do as I preach this sermon you're listening and you're learning and you're growing if you are a true believer you are being sanctified in this very moment by this message. I preach, you hear, and there's sanctification. Does I tell you how important it is to be in church? Going to church is like being put on the rapid charger to be like Christ. So thank God for the word that you hear in church. You are growing as you hear the word of God. You are perfected in your faith. That is your sanctification. So you can mark this down. Your whole life will be spent in this process. Until the day you die, you will be in the process. It goes on and on and on. And then after you die, it's complete. And the Bible calls that your glorification. That's when sanctification is no longer needed because you've reached the point that you are just like Christ. Now, secondly, I'd like for us to look at the accomplishment of sanctification. In our text in verse 23, and the very God of peace sanctify you. And then in verse 24, faithful is he that calleth you. I love to study God's word because there are places where we find marvelous doctrine where Paul has a way of just casually mentioning the doctrine and he's expecting you to see it and know it. Now at least he expected the Thessalonians to pick up on this. And I can only mention it here briefly in the process of talking about sanctification. In addition to sanctification, he says, God called you. God called you. What does that mean? Well, it's talking about the effectual call of the Holy Spirit. God called you. This is a call that God gives to his chosen people. Now, let's consider for a moment the calling just very briefly. This calling, God is the author of it. God called you. Faithful is he that called you and he will do it. God is the author of sanctification. He's faithful to make sure that it happens. And he begins by calling you. Now you notice that calling comes before the sanctification. So what does is, what is he mean that God called you? Again, that's the effectual call of the Holy Spirit. And let me, let me tell you why that's so important. It's important because some people preach that there is only one call of the Holy Spirit. There is one call. It goes out to everybody in the gospel. But we beg to differ because that's not what Paul says. If there's only one call and that call is the same for all and it goes out to everybody with the gospel, then all will be sanctified because Paul said God is faithful to do it for those he called. There's a certainty to that. So if he calls, he's going to do it. 
He's going to accomplish it in you. Now, I can't go into it much now, but listen to Paul in first, uh, or in Ephesians chapter 1, how he combined God's choice of people for salvation and their sanctification. In Ephesians 1 verse 4, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy, that we should be holy and without blame, before him in love. Now, do you see the same thing that we see in 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24? God chose you to be holy and without blame. He called those he chose to be sanctified. So the effectual call of the Spirit comes to those that God chose. And these are the people that are saved. And God begins to work his purpose in them for which he called them. What is the purpose? Paul tells us again in Ephesians, verse number 12, chapter 1, that we, this is the purpose, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ. Now, what's my point in all of this? Well, the point is there's a difference in calls. The call goes out to all people indiscriminately. That is the call of the gospel. That goes out to everybody without distinction. We preach to everybody. I don't separate this out and say, well, I'm going to preach to people only on the second row. Surely he needs it. I mean, Jorge, I'll preach to him, but not the rest of you. No, the call of the gospel goes out to everybody. But we know that everybody doesn't hear. Some people just will not hear the gospel. Some people don't listen. And so God gives us this other calling, a very peculiar calling. It goes to God's people that is chosen and the Spirit regenerates them and they begin the process of sanctification. You see, this call, the effectual call, can't go to all indiscriminately because then God would not be faithful unless every one of them became sanctified. That's what the Scripture says. So that's just a, a little more doctrine that Paul subtly inserts that good students of God's Word ought to recognize. There is remarkable consistency in Paul's doctrine. He lays perfect foundations, and unlike those that are short-sighted in doctrine, Paul is never going to cross himself. He, he's, he's not going to contradict himself to support doctrines that can't be supported. So he says, God does this. God did not choose us because we are holy. He chose us to be holy. Romans 8, 29, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son. You see that? He chose us to be conformed to the image of his Son. That is sanctification. And God does it. He is the author of it. You and I have no power to sanctify ourselves. And that's the reason that Paul said, God will sanctify you. You mark it down, underline it in your Bible, God will do it. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, he will sanctify you. And I'll repeat it again. If you are not in that sanctification process, something is terribly wrong. If you're not being made more like Christ, something is terribly wrong because God is faithful. God is faithful. Underline that. He will do it. Now, I wanted to get that much across to you today. That sort of kind of lays a foundation for more that we want to talk about in this doctrine. And next week, we're going to look at it a little more deeply. I heard, I heard a story about a farmer who went to church on one Sunday, and he and the preacher were the only ones that showed up. The preacher had the message prepared. He was determined that he was going to preach. And the old farmer, he was determined that he wanted to hear. He came to church to hear a sermon. 
And so the preacher began to preach. And the preacher went on for about an hour and a half, delivering a deep doctrinal sermon. He was very demonstrative in this, and he was very satisfied that he'd taken the subject about as deep as he could go. And so at the end of the sermon, he was very interested to hear, what did the farmer think of it? What, what did he think of this sermon? And the old farmer said, well, I'll tell you, preacher, when I take hay out to feed the cows and only one shows up, I don't feed him the whole wagon. <laughs> so I don't want to feed you the whole wagon today. We're going we're gonna to stop here and take up more next time. And I want to talk about how God accomplishes your sanctification. So let me circle our wagons and finish where I started. You can't know Christ and you can't be like Christ until you trust him as your savior. Sanctification is a process that takes place after you know Christ as savior. And I say after, but I want you to understand that all I'm speaking of here is a logical order because after only means next. Salvation comes first. But then immediately upon trusting Christ as Savior, there is an immersion into this process of sanctification. The Holy Spirit is in you. He's come to live in you. And he is not going to wait to begin this internal work of making you like God's Son, Jesus Christ. Do you have a desire to serve him with all your heart? Then I could say if that's your desire, then that's proof that you're born again. I want you to be sure of that. If there is no desire, if you go on sinning and you have no desire to be like Christ when you know what you do is wrong, then you have no confidence that you're a child of God. Sanctification is expected and it's guaranteed by God. Faithful is he that calleth you and will also do it. So why did Paul command these persecuted people, people that are tempted People that were oftentimes weak and it seemed so difficult. Why did he command them to say, no, you must do this. You, you must do this. It doesn't make any difference how weak you are. It doesn't make any difference how many trials that you face. It doesn't make any difference what you think about it and what you think is better for you. Do you follow Christ without excuse? He told them to do it because he knew if they're saved, God called them. And God is always faithful to that calling. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word today. It's so important that we see what you've written for us to do and how that our assurance of salvation comes out of our willingness to serve you. And so we do as the Apostle Paul. We warn folks who are not in a sanctifying process, that are not being made more like Christ, that can go on sinning willfully, Without repentance, there is great cause, great concern that they are truly children of God. And I know at times, Lord, we can have people sitting right in the congregation that, whose lives are not what they should be. And, um, and they go on, and, and Lord, we just wonder, what does it take? What does it take for a child of God to recognize his sin, turn from that sin? Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronan Park, California, 
888-949-94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.